The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, folks. Pastor Darren here, coming to you via the big screen today. Now, if you're at our Poco campus, you're saying, what's so unusual about this? You're coming through the big screen every week. Well, this morning, I normally teach this class in person at our Vancouver campus, but uh, I've decided at the last minute to, uh, to travel to, to England this weekend to uh, attend the funeral of my good friend, Ken Williamson. I shared in my sermon last week that uh, Ken suddenly passed away. And after a lot of thought, I decided, you know something? I'm, I'm going to make the extra effort and I'm going to fly over to England to be with his family and friends and honor his life. And so as you're seeing this, it's Sunday morning and uh, I have hopped on a plane this morning and uh, I'm going to be at the funeral, arrive in London Monday morning, attend the funeral Monday afternoon and then uh, Tuesday morning I'm flying back to Vancouver. But I still wanted to be part of this verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and so I'm recording it via video for our Vancouver campus as well this week. So if you have your Bibles, please turn in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 1, and we're picking it up in verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now let me remind you of where, uh, we, what we've learned the last couple of weeks, particularly last time we were together. We learned that verses 1 to 13 gives us an insider or sort of a heavenly perspective. Remember we said, do you ever get frustrated reading about the disciples in the Gospel of Mark and thinking to yourself, come on guys, how, how can you be so thick? How can you not get this? Well, are you stupid? Well, if you just start reading in verse 14, where we're going to pick it up today, you'll have a very different perspective on the ministry of Jesus than if you start reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. Verse 1 to verse 13 of Mark chapter 1, which we learned last time we were together, is the heavenly perspective. It's the insider's view. It's like the narrator's voice in a movie giving you the background, telling you what's really going on, giving you the rest of the story. And so we get filled in in the verse 13, first 13 verses about who Jesus really is. We get, we get the Father uh, pronouncing his blessing upon him. We get the Spirit descending like a dove upon him at his baptism. We're informed about the true nature of who this Jesus is. But none of the people who were eye-to-eye -eye with Jesus, starting in verse 14 and to the end of the Gospel of Mark, none of them had the same access that you already have as a reader. So we're picking it up in verse 14 of chapter 1. And by the way, something I failed to mention last time, but I actually have in my, my notes in my own Bible here. When you look at verse 8 of chapter 1, look at verse 8 of chapter 1 where it says, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What I failed to mention and point out was the John there is assigning to Jesus a power and authority that only God has. Particularly in the Old Testament, only Yahweh himself could baptize people with the Spirit. Only Yahweh himself could pour out the Holy Spirit upon people. So right there again, there's clues, there's hints from the very beginning of the true nature of who this Jesus truly is and was. And also in the first 13 verses, there's the temptation of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. Okay, so 
We're we about to pick it up now in verse 14. But as we pick it up in verse 14, notice what Mark has omitted from Jesus' life. Uh, he ignores the dramatic uh, events associated with the Christmas story. There's no Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark. There's no virgin birth. There's no journey to Bethlehem. There's no worship of the shepherds. There's no magi, wise men. There's no Herod's assassination attempt, hiding in Egypt. None of that in the Gospel of Mark. None of his genealogy is in the Gospel of Mark. His parents, his ancestors. Mark is silent when it comes to uh, John the Baptist's priestly heritage, about his parents, about John the Baptist's childhood experience uh, of the Spirit. There's nothing in the Gospel of Mark about uh, John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus. It appears they were cousins. None of this gets a mention from Mark at all because it doesn't fit with what Mark wanted to teach, what Mark wanted to communicate. You ever had a friend or maybe a preacher who um, easily get sidetracked with stories. So they're telling you a story, and, and as they're telling you one story, they say, you know, I was talking to Robin the other day. Of, of course, you know, Robin. You know, Robin and I go back. We go back to about the 1960s. Well, those, that was a good decade, the 1960s. Uh, you know, when I was in the 60s, I used to live... So they, they go off track as they keep heading down bunny trails. They're great people to talk to because it's very entertaining and you learn a lot, but they're, they're constantly getting sidetracked. Well, Mark is not one of those people. Mark has tunnel vision with his gospel. And let's remind ourselves, a gospel is simply a story about Jesus. And none of the four gospels are exhaustive, meaning no one gospel contains everything that Jesus said or did. They're all arranged in different ways as well. In the gospel of John, for example, John 21, 25, it says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, John's obviously using hyperbole there. He's exaggerating. But he, he is teaching that, hey, there's lots of things Jesus said and did that we're not writing down. But each author of each gospel uniquely assembled thoughts and events uh, in, in the life of Jesus. Luke, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, put it this way. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke is saying, you know, many people have sought to, to pull together stories about Jesus as handed down from the apostles, the first eyewitnesses. With this in mind, Luke goes on to say, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... So in other words, Luke is saying, I have compiled from different sources uh, events from the life of Jesus rooted in the apostolic teaching. He says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus was an actual person or if Theophilus was sort of like a pseudonym because uh, uh, it means lover of God. So he could be writing to everyone who's, who loves God's. Either way, he says, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent lovers of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So there's lots that Mark could have included. The whole um, nativity story. Uh, there's lots he didn't tell us about the baptism of, or the temptations of Jesus. There's lots of stuff he didn't include that other gospel writers included. But that's not the point. 
typical to Mark's fast-paced, get-to-the-point style. He goes immediately uh, uh, to the ministry of Jesus. So he moves John the Baptist right off the scene in verse 14 and transitions right away to the public ministry of Jesus. Okay? Let's start reading verse 14 and verse 15 of Mark chapter 1. So after John was put in prison, so see that right away, he's done with John, puts him in prison, and he says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So there you go. As your outline says, this first section, Jesus declares his authority. In the first few verses, verses 14 to 20 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus declares his authority is what we're about to see. And as your outline says, A1, he does this through his preaching. He does this through his preaching. Read it again, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's the content, you know, verse uh, 15. Think of verse 15 as Jesus' big idea. You know, here at Broadway, we have the, the big idea every week of the sermon, uh, the, the summary of the teaching in one simple sentence. Well, it's like verse 15 is Jesus' big idea. If you're going to summarize all that Jesus taught, here it is, Mark said. This is what he proclaimed. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. By the way, that first word, the time has come. In Greek, there's two main words you could use for time, chronos and kairos. Um, chronos, which is where we get our word chronology. So it's like time, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. That's a word for time, but he didn't use that word. He used the word kairos, which is K-A-I-R-O-S, which is more the word for an appointed time, a special time, a unique time in history. So not so much chronos, the time on your watch, but kairos, the, the, the appointed, a unique designated sovereign period in the history of the world. And that's the word that's used here. The kairos has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So now it's through his preaching. Now, as your outline says, letter B, the kingdom of God, what does that mean? It's the active and absolute rule of God over creation. That's what kingdom of God means. It's the active and absolute rule of God over creation. Now, what's interesting is that term, the kingdom of God, is not mentioned in the Old Testament. That's a uniquely New Testament term, the kingdom of God. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, it's certainly implicitly and explicitly taught as a concept uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel, a book that Jesus alludes to a lot, as we're going to learn uh, next week when we get together again. But uh, the, the actual term kingdom of God is a New Testament term. Now, understand something. The the Old Testament mindset kind of divided the history of humanity into two main sections. The Old Testament mindset was, there was the, uh, well, there's the kingdom of this world. Kingdom of the world. Uh, let me put it this way. The kingdom, the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom 
of God. Okay, so there's two kingdoms uh, in the Old Testament thinking or in the uh, in, in the ancients thinking. There was uh, also they would call it this present evil age. So there's this present evil age, and then there was the age to come. Okay, so there's this present evil age. There's a parenthesis. And then there was the age to come. Okay? This present evil age is the kingdom of the world. It's what we're living in now. And in the Hebrew mind, in the future, when the Messiah comes, he will bring in the age to come. He'll bring in the kingdom of God or God's dominion or God's sovereignty, God's sovereign rule, as it would be referred to in the Old Testament. So what the average man and woman on the street, what came to their mind when they heard the term the kingdom of God, it would have been, to them, it would have been God establishing his kingdom. It meant God conquering evil and eradicating all sickness. The kingdom of God for them, God's rule meant God visiting his people to bring about peace and judgment and destroying the rulers of this world. It meant destroying all the political oppressors and restoring the nation of Israel to its rightful place in the promised land, the geographical location of modern-day Israel. That was the thinking of a first-century uh, Jewish person. When they heard the kingdom of God, they would think, ah, yes, that's when God comes. He finally does away with this present evil age. He does away with the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God is ushered in. That's the age to come. And the big defining moment is when the Messiah comes, ends the one kingdom, and begins the next kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that the kingdom of God has come near. Now that phrase in the original Greek is a little bit nebulous, meaning it means has arrived, so it's already here. But the term also means has drawn near or is near. So it's kind of a little bit both. Is it here or is it not here yet? And um, you've heard me before liken it to when you're standing at the Renfrew uh, Skytrain station here. And you're standing on the platform and the train arrives. Now it hasn't stopped yet. The doors aren't open yet. And I'm on the phone. Okay, I'm on the phone and I'm talking to my friend. And my friend says, where are you, Darren? I say, I'm at the Renfrew Skytrain. And they say, has the train arrived? Now, the train's right in front of me, but it hasn't stopped yet, and the doors aren't open. I can say, yes, it's here, but it's not yet fully here. So it's here, but it's not fully here yet. It's arrived, but it's not arrived in its completion yet. Not entirely. I'm not entirely experiencing the, the full train yet. Okay? Well, the reality is, that's kind of what's happening with the kingdom of God. Though they didn't know it yet. So, but what they heard was, when they heard kingdom of God, yes, the age to come that the Messiah ushers in. And that's true. But what we've learned since is that this parenthesis, when the evil age ends, actually goes like this. So in other words, the present evil age doesn't end here when the new age comes, it's actually, there's an overlap. You and I live in this zone right here. We live where there's an overlap between the two kingdoms. The kingdom of God has come, but the present evil age is not yet completely over yet. There's this overlap. 
Now, there'll be a day come at the return of Christ when this present evil age and the kingdom of this world will be completely gone. And only that's what's left is the kingdom of God in the age to come. But right now, you and I live in this overlap realm. That is a, was unknown to them. It's a, it's a mystery that's been revealed to us now in the New Testament, that we live in this age. So Jesus is saying, the age to come, the kingdom of God has arrived, and it's arriving. It's not fully here yet, but it's arriving. And this was the message that Jesus was ushering in. The kingdom of God, I'm ushering it in. It's come now to the world. But what you and I understand is a little different than what they understood at verse 14, some 2,000 years ago. And Jesus will soon be elaborating more about what this kingdom of God is like. And we're going to pick that up in a week or two where Jesus is going to teach a little bit more about this kingdom. So he's having to educate them on what the kingdom of God is like. And he likens it to like a little mustard seed that starts small, but it's going to grow exponentially. He's going to, he's going to do a lot of teaching. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Okay. And again, part of Jesus' message, he says, so repent. Now, as your outline says, that word repent literally means change allegiances and submit to God's authority. That's the next blank on your outline. Repent means change your allegiances and submit to God's authority. Okay? So, in verses 14 to 15 here, Mark gives us the essence of the message, the big idea uh, that Jesus preached everywhere he went. So, Jesus declares his authority here through his teaching and, number two, to A2, and through his calling upon others to follow him. Through his calling upon others to follow him. He's declaring his authority, uh, not just through his teaching, but also through his calling upon others to follow him. We see that in verses 16 to 20. Let's read that together. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon... And his, Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now look at that. Right away, they just dropped their nets and followed him. So we're, we're seeing the authority that Jesus has. He just says, follow me, and they stop what they're doing and follow him. Keep reading. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John also a son of Zebedee, in a boat, preparing their nets without delay. So again, see how sudden this is. Mark is trying to communicate the authority of Jesus. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. So again, Jesus is declaring his, his authority by calling others to follow him. Now, notice how Jesus contextualizes his message. We've touched on this before it, when we teach on our core value of relevance here at Broadway Church. We talk about how, how Jesus understood his audience and he spoke to the, the people according to their understanding, according to their level of understanding, according to their culture, according to um, what they would grasp. He was a master storyteller and he told stories targeting uh, what they would understand in their day-to-day -day experiences here. So he's speaking to fishermen by a lake in their fishing boat, mending nets. So he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men or people who, who catch humans uh, uh, for, for a living, if you will. So he's again contextualizing here. And note, notice something else about what happens at this moment. As it says on your outline, 
Jesus reversed the norm. He reversed the norm. Usually, disciples asked rabbis for permission to follow them. Jesus flips it over, and he tells the disciples, you follow me. This is a huge change. Again, this is Jesus showing his authority. Normally, a, 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 a disciple would go to a rabbi, uh, go to a leader, and say, can I follow you? Will you be my mentor? Is it okay if I follow you now and I learn from you? But that's not how Jesus did it. He flipped, uh, flipped it all. He says, you, you, come, follow me. Again, what authority he's demonstrating here. And again, as it says on your outline, letter B, regular prophets didn't call people to follow themselves, but to follow God. Look what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't saying, come and follow God. Come and follow Yahweh. He says, come, follow me. Again, he's displaying and demonstrating uh, his authority here in a, in a huge way is what he's doing. He's saying, follow me. He's declaring his authority to these people. By the way, once again, Mark edits the events. Um, from other gospel writers, we learn that Andrew was first a disciple of John the Baptist. We read that in other gospels. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And Andrew met Jesus. And then Andrew goes to his brother Peter and says, I met a guy. You, you, you've got to come meet him. I think I've met the Messiah. And uh, so Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. But Mark doesn't include any of that. So this meeting that we have here in Mark chapter 1, uh, this meeting uh, by the Sea of Galilee wasn't the first meeting between Jesus and Andrew and Peter. But what Mark does is he telescopes. So you can think in terms of a telescope. You know, you look through the stars and you can get them where you pull it out and it gets longer and then you make it smaller long. Well, this is what he does. He telescopes things. He takes an event that's longer and he just shortens it. He telescopes it, which is fine. It's, he's a writer. He can do this. He can edit things. He telescopes these events as a way of communicating the authority of Jesus. Okay? That's what he's doing here. He's just wanting to show that the authority that Jesus has, that he says, you come and follow me. Yes, they had meetings before that. Uh, yes, it wasn't as sudden as it appears. So in other words, Jesus wasn't this absolute stranger that he just walked up to people and they've never seen him before. He said, follow me. And Peter and Andrew said, yeah, okay, see you, Dad. We're gone. That'd be odd. Um, so th there was a context behind this. They knew who he was, and they were ready, and they decided to respond yes to his authoritative call. So, Jesus declares his authority through the, his preaching and through his calling others to follow him. In the next section, verses 21 to 28, Jesus teaches with authority. First, he declares his authority. Now, letter B on your outline, Jesus teaches with authority. Let's pick it up in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, and he began to teach. In March, Lord willing, of 2020, we're going to be taking another tour to Israel. And uh, we are going to go to Capernaum in Galilee. Um, of all the places in Israel that I go to, my favorite place of all is Capernaum. 
Um, when I, during my sabbatical, and I spent a month on my own in Israel, I, I spent a week or so in Tiberias, which is close to Capernaum, and I would walk, I literally would walk around the Sea of Galilee and spend a day in Capernaum in the synagogue there, sitting, reading and studying, sitting by the Sea of Galilee with my guitar, and uh, it's peaceful, it's beautiful, and um, I love Capernaum. And Capernaum was the, so if this is the Sea of Galilee, um, this is north. Uh, Tiberius would be about here, and Capernaum would be about here. So sort of in the northwestern section of the Sea of Galilee. And this and Nazareth is over here uh, in the hills, sort of. And uh, so in modern day, this is uh, Jordan, and uh, Syria is up here, and Lebanon is up here, and Egypt is way down here. So... Uh, uh, Capernaum was the home base for Jesus, his ministry. And he goes in here and he, uh, it's just a, it was a little fishing village right on the, the Sea of Galilee. It's right on the shore. And this is where Jesus made his home base. Not Nazareth for his ministry, but Capernaum. Let's read verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching. So he goes into the synagogue and we will go into that synagogue uh, that's built on the spot of the original one. The synagogue that's there now, I think, was built in the 3rd, 4th century. I can't quite remember. So in the 200s, 300s. But, um, but you can see the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus actually preached in. You need to set aside March of 2020 and come with us to, to, to Israel. It's going to be a great time together. We're going to go to Capernaum, Lord willing. So verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, who are the teachers of the law to which Mark is referring? Well, the teachers of the law, as your outline says, were the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Um, scribes were, what, as your outline says, what a modern lawyer is to the law, an ancient scribe was to scripture meaning a scribe studied the scripture and, and, and they, they uh, interpreted it and they would copy it. So they were to be experts uh, when it came to understanding the, the, the law and understanding and, and uh, dissecting the law. Okay, that's what a scribe's job was. Pharisees were, if you can think of them, Pharisees and Sadducees were like political parties. Religious political parties in the first century. And as your outline says, Pharisees were a right of center, so they are more conservative, a right of center religious party that represented mainstream Judaism. Okay? So they were a right of center religious party that represented the average man on the street pretty well uh, were represented by the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a left of center, so they are more liberal, more progressive, a left of center religious party that represented aristocratic Judaism. So Sadducees tended to represent more of the wealthy. And Sadducees were left of center, more progressive. They didn't believe in the resurrection, for example. They were more liberal in their interpretation of things. Pharisees were more literal, more conservative in their interpretation of things. Okay? So those were the, 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 the teachers of the law during the time of Jesus. And Matthew gives us a specific example of how Jesus taught with unique authority. Not Mark, but Matthew gives us a unique example. Mark just says, you know, the people said, hey, he teaches not like the teachers of the law, but he teaches with authority. Well, what does that mean? 
In, in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 22, he, he gives us a phrase that we're very familiar with, if you're familiar with Scripture. Jesus often said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You heard that it was said long ago, you know, uh, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman uh, lustfully, with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your, in your heart. So how is that an example of Jesus teaching not like those of the law, but with authority? Because what Jesus does, which is unique, is he doesn't base his teaching on someone else's teaching. In those days, a, a scribe, a Pharisee, a Sadducee would get their authority from someone else. Well, I'm quoting Rabbi Shmael from, you know, 970 or something. And, and you would, the older, the farther back you could go with your quotation, the more authoritative you were. The more people you could cite, you could, you know, more authoritative you were. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. In other words, you've heard other people teach and, and say this. You've heard other people, other authorities say this. But I say to you. In other words, he's not citing anyone else. He's not using anyone else to back him up. He's just simply saying, here's what I'm telling you. He is his own authority. And the people are saying, whoa, who is this guy? He's not sitting here telling us, quoting all the rabbis from centuries past or decades past. He's just saying, Here's, what it, here's the way it is. Here's what I'm telling you. He's teaching like no one else did. Now Mark doesn't, in his gospel, doesn't give us a lot of the content of Jesus' teaching. He will in a couple weeks. He'll give us some more. We'll dissect some of the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God. But there's only two main sections in the gospel of Mark where we get sort of the content of Jesus' teaching. But instead, particularly in this section today, he describes how the authority of Jesus' teaching had a visual and immediate impact. Pick it up. Let's keep reading verse 23 to 26. Just then, so Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Did I mention we will go there in, in 2020? Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, a demon, cried out. So this is the, the demon speaking through this man. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Here's a question, and it's on your outline. Why would the demons testify about Jesus? Why would this demon testify about Jesus? Wouldn't you think the demon would kind of just be quiet about who Jesus is or who Jesus was and keep it quiet? Why would he advertise for Jesus? Now, this was either a reverent acknowledgement of Jesus' power by the demon, or it was a panicked attempt at a defensive strategy. What do we mean by that? We know what the, the reverent acknowledgement of his power means. What do we mean a panicked attempt at a defensive strategy? You need to understand how exorcists worked in the first century. Uh, what the common tradition was for someone who sought to deliver people from demonic oppression back then. Knowledge was considered power by first century exorcists. So a classic strategy, as your outline says, a classic strategy was to pronounce the name of your opponent, thus displaying your power over them. 
If you could pronounce the name of your opponent, if you knew the name of the demon that was in that person, you were demonstrating your power and your authority over them. You know who they are because you have power by naming them. And so you're displaying to everyone, I know who you are. That means I have greater authority over you. I'm able to label you. And so it's very possible that that's what the demon was doing here. As this panic defensive strategy, I know who you are, Jesus. You're, you're the holy one. So trying to somehow wrestle and gain upper authority in this battle. What Jesus does is he just demonstrates his superior authority by simply shutting the entire strategy down. He says, be quiet. And commands the, the demon to come out of him. And that's exactly what happens. Again, a huge demonstration of the authority of Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 27, 28. The people in the synagogue, they see this. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other. Again, here's the theme of the, the first act. Remember we said the Gospel of Mark is basically broken up into three acts. Act one, the theme is, who is this guy? Who is this man? And we're seeing this theme here. They're asking each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. So who is this? Where does he get this authority is what they're saying. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And so begins this theme of Act 1 uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this man? So in today's passage so far, Jesus declares his authority. B, Jesus teaches with authority. And that brings us to C on your outline. Jesus demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his authority. And we pick this up starting in verse 29, where, as your outline says, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. C, number one. Now, remember, Peter was the apostolic source for much of Mark's gospel. We learned this in week one, and, and we, when we introduced ourselves to the gospel of Mark. We learned that Mark was Peter's interpreter, Peter's translator. Uh, Peter was probably more fluent Aramaic, a Hebrew Aramaic speaker. Not great Greek speaker, most likely, but Mark apparently was. Mark writes this gospel in ancient Greek. And so we learn from ancient history that Mark was actually a translator, an interpreter for Peter. He also worked with Paul, but he was a translator, interpreter for Peter. And so Peter was the apostolic source for Mark's gospel. Mark pulled together... Um, the, the Apostle John, we learned this through ancient historians. John tells us that Mark traveled with Peter, heard Peter's stories and teaching, and put them together in a gospel form, in a story about Jesus. So you can almost imagine that Mark's got in the back of his mind, Peter, of all the stories, Peter would say, you know, did I ever tell you about the time Jesus healed my mother-in-law? And, and so that, that's what Mark includes here. Of all the healings, he points out the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, because Peter was the apostolic source of this gospel. Let's read about it, starting in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Again, when you come with us to Capernaum, uh, the synagogue is right here, and uh, there's a sort of a street here, and anyway, and a street here, and Peter's mother-in-law's house is right there. It is literally... Um, I'm going to say from one end of, of, the, of the 
of this lower auditorium to the other, it's probably this far away, maybe a little farther, this plus a half again. The synagogue is that close to Peter's home or the, the home of Peter's mother-in-law. It takes you one minute to walk from the synagogue to the home of Peter's mother-in-law. And here's what's unique. Uh, historically, archaeologists have discovered the foundation of this home. And, uh, you know, when you go to Israel, there's some things that are more certain of than others. Um, from the studies I've read and the archaeologists and historians that I've read over the years, they're saying this location that we'll go to in Capernaum, that location is like 90 95% certainty that that was the home of Peter's mother-in-law. It's fascinating, and it's very close to the ancient synagogue. So Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. By the way, if you want to notice something, underline the word immediately, or right away and immediately. It's filled, the Gospel of Mark is filled with that term. It's a very fast-moving book. Immediately they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So what happens is a buzz begins to build in the village. Jesus is in town. He, a, a demon-possessed man's been set free. He healed a, a, a woman there, Peter's mother-in-law. She's been healed. So there's a buzz building in the town. Let's pick it up in verse 32. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-oppressed. The whole town gathered at the door. Now, again, this is a bit of hyperbole, just like when he said everybody in Jerusalem and Judea came to be baptized by John the Baptist. It's, it's a poetic device. He's saying, so there's a huge crowd, okay? Jesus healed many who had various, uh, the whole town gathered. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Um, why did... Why did Jesus not let them speak? Because he knew who he was. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, let's fill in the blanks on your outline. Number two there, Jesus heals many and drove out many demons. So what happens after he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law? Jesus heals many and drove out many demons. And the Bible says that that evening after sunset, it says that evening after sunset. So this was when the Sabbath officially ended enabling people to once again wander about freely. So that evening after sunset, this was when the Sabbath officially ended and the people could wander about freely. So us, our, our, our days go from morning to evening. A Jewish mindset, a reckoning of time, was evening to the following evening. That, that was a day. So a day ended uh, at, the, at the sunset, and the next day began then at sunset, and then the next day ended at the following sunset. Okay, so that, that evening after sunset, okay, Sabbath is done, it's sunset, the sun's gone down, we're free to wander around again. We don't have to follow the Sabbath rules anymore. So you can imagine it had been pretty quiet uh, during Sabbath, but now, boom, they're all loose, they're wandering around, there's a buzz in the village of Capernaum because of all the healing and dramatic stuff that went on in the synagogue and in Peter's mother-in-law's home, okay? But it says Jesus commanded them to be quiet because they knew who he was. Why would Jesus demand silence uh, of these demons? Well, we've learned already that it, was, it could have been a bit of a power play. But as your outline says, um, Mark records that Jesus would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So why would he do, Jesus do this? Scholars have the following observations. Three possibilities. A, 
just as in a court of law, the character of one's witnesses matters. So just like in a court of law, the character of your witness matters. So it could be that Jesus is saying, you know, uh, I don't necessarily need demons to be testifying on my behalf. They're not exactly the character witnesses I'm looking for. Um, it's like if you're in court, you're not going to say, yes, yeah, so I have these. We've got um, a bank robber, a drug dealer, and five motorcycle gang members are all willing to testify to my character. Well, okay, could you not find someone a little different? Um, and that could be a reason why. Jesus didn't need demons testifying on his behalf. Or it could have been B. Messianic fervor would limit Jesus' ability to function. Messianic fervor would limit Jesus' ability to function. And, and uh, we actually are going to see this at the end of chapter 1 um, in, in a few moments where when Jesus told another person to be quiet, he wasn't quiet, and that limited Jesus' ability to travel. Because word gets out, the Messiah is here. Oh, Crowds just magnetize, magnetize to you. Jesus can, can't go anywhere. So he's not looking to, to advertise all over the world and everywhere right away that he's the Messiah because he knows the, that what they think the Messiah is is not what the Messiah really is. And he's not looking for that fervor right now. And uh, which is what letter, letter C refers to, the third uh, option here. Messianic fervor would stir up political unrest. Messianic fervor would stir up political unrest. Since the Messiah in the first century, as we learned already, was seen as a political figure. So this would give the Romans an excuse to shut down his ministry before the appointed time. So, if everybody thinks he's the Messiah, and they think the Messiah is the political ruler who's going to, again, bring in the kingdom of God and destroy the, the present evil age and the kingdoms of this world and kick the Romans out of the, the land of Israel and so on. So that would give the Romans a great excuse to just come and shut down Jesus' ministry, to crucify him right away, kill him. And uh, Jesus saying, no, I, I've got so much work to do here still. And so it could be that the, the demons were wanting this to happen. They were trying to stir it up as a way of shutting him down. We don't know. Scholars are offering these as all sorts of options as to why Jesus was silencing these demons. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 35. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So what happens here is, as your outline says, Jesus reveals his source of authority. Jesus reveals his source of authority. In other words, what's happening here is Jesus isn't a sorcerer. He's not working by magic or independent of God's help, but he's relying on God himself, the Spirit of God. And uh, so this is what Mark is communicating here. And then we read in verse 36 to 39, as your outline says, now Jesus is about to reveal his detachment from the adulation or the adoring of the crowds. So the next, number four, Jesus reveals his detachment from the adulation or the praise of the crowds. Let's read that, verse 36 to 39. Simon and his companions went to look for him. So Jesus has gone off into the hills, uh, and there's hills just above Capernaum there. He goes off into the hills, and, when, and Simon goes looking for him. And they find him. 
And when they found him, they exclaimed, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So when they come to him and say, hey, Jesus, everybody in Capernaum wants to see you again. He's saying, no, let's go. I don't need the praise and adulation of these people. It's not as though, yeah, we've got a good thing going here. Let's just milk these crowds. He said, no, let's go somewhere else where we haven't been yet. This is why I've come. Okay? So he's not attached to the, the worship or, the, or the, 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 the following of fans. He's saying, no, I'm here to preach and declare the kingdom of God message. Then, verses 40 to 45, as your outline says, number five, Jesus next demonstrates his power over a disease that involved religious authorities. So Mark points out a time, again, there's lots of healings from which he could have chosen. He shows us a healing that Jesus did that intentionally involved the religious authorities. Why would he do this? Well, let's look in and see what we can learn. Read verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, Continuing in this theme of demonstrating the authority of Jesus, Mark chooses an instance where Jesus heals a man who had a disease that required the involvement of Jewish religious authorities, which was leprosy. Um, Now the word leprosy here, the original Greek word was a word for various diseases that affect the skin. It's not necessarily the classic leprosy that we think of today, though it may very well have been that, but wasn't necessarily. It could have been any skin disease. But this was a disease that required, when you had it in the first century as a Jew, it required the involvement of religious authorities because you were ceremonially unclean. Nobody could come near you. You couldn't touch anyone. They couldn't touch you. Or you would have to go through these ceremonies to be ritually pure again so you could go back into the synagogue and so on and so forth. So you had to get vetted and pronounced clean from this by a religious leader. Let's keep reading. Verse 41. Jesus was, so this man's come, begged him, said, if you're willing, please make me clean. This next verse is unique. Jesus was indignant. Like he was angry. That's what that word literally means. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, what does Jesus was indignant mean? Now, some versions and your version may at the bottom say, some versions say had compassion. Maybe your version of the Bible has, instead of indignant, maybe your version says Jesus had compassion on him. Some versions have had compassion there, but the earliest manuscripts and the best manuscripts that we have say angry or indignant. Jesus was angry. Jesus was indignant. Now, why was Jesus angry? Was he angry at this guy? How dare you come up to me and ask me to heal you? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? What's going on? Well, Jesus was emotionally affected by this encounter, but Mark doesn't explain why. But Jesus is clearly not angry at the man, because the very next sentence, Jesus reaches out and touches him and heals him. says, yes, I'm willing to heal you. Be clean. So it appears that Jesus was angry or indignant at sin and what sin does to humanity. Jesus saw this man in this poor condition, ostracized, and he's angry at what he sees in front of him. Yes, he says, I'm willing. And he touches him and makes him clean. By the way, 
wouldn't Jesus touching this man with leprosy, wouldn't that make Jesus ceremonially unclean? This is not addressed in scripture, but as I've looked into it and what scholars seem to say, I thought it was quite profound. It appears that Jesus is so powerful that he reverses the direction of impurity. Normally, the leper would make a person unclean, but Jesus is so powerful that he touches the leper and Jesus, the power is reversed. He cleanses the leper instead of the leper defiling him. Jesus is so powerful, he reverses the river, the, 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 the flow. Normally, impurity flows to you when you touch it, but Jesus is so powerful, he's not made impure, he purifies what is impure. In fact, as your outline says, the grammatical structure of Jesus' words, be clean, indicate that Jesus didn't just declare the man was clean. So as your outline says, the grammatical structure, the, 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 the verb tense of these words, be clean, the way it's phrased tells us that Jesus didn't just declare, you know, okay, you're clean. That would have been communicated by the use of the indicative mood, uh, the verb tense. But as your outline says, but what, what's, how it's said here means that Jesus caused the man to be clean. That's the next blank. He didn't just declare the man clean, but Jesus caused the man to be clean. And that's indicated by Mark's use of the imperative mood. Be clean. I'm causing you to be clean is what, is what Mark's communicating through the verb tense here. All right, verses 43 and 44. Jesus sent him away at once. So this man who's just been healed, he sends him away at once with a stern, strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So he's saying, don't be advertising it around here, but first, go to the priest, advertise it to them, and so you can be declared ceremonial, ceremonially clean. So as your outline says, a leper could not be restored to full functioning in Jewish society until a priest had examined him and declared him clean. So a priest has to examine and say, yeah, you no longer have leprosy. Jesus is saying, go, have that done. Why would he do this? Well, we don't know for sure, but here's a, a good idea that I think bears... Uh, considering, letter C on your outline. If a priest established that this man was free of the disease, that's the next blank, if a priest established that this man was free of the disease, yet then failed to recognize, that's the next blank, if a priest established that this man was free of the disease, yet then failed to recognize the person or power through whom the healing had come, that priest would have been denying the evidence that they'd already affirmed. So Jesus is saying, go to the priest, have the priest pronounce you clean, and then tell them how it happened. And the priest is stuck. If he's saying, yeah, you're clean, but I deny the power that cleansed you, then you're denying that I'm clean, but you just said I am clean. So the, the priest has put in a unique situation here where to, to recognize and declare the man is clean, which is obvious, the evidence, he then has to connect the dot that it was Jesus who made him clean. All right. Well, and then verse 45. Instead, the guy didn't follow Jesus' advice. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And look at this. As a result... 
Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So this, again, is one of the reasons why Jesus didn't find it necessary right away to be blabbing to everyone. Because what it did was it restricted his ability to travel. Okay. Well, in today's passage, Mark has shown us how Jesus declared his authority through his preaching and calling others to follow him. Very unique. Jesus taught with authority, citing himself instead of citing other uh, rabbis. Um, and how Jesus demonstrated his authority through miraculous deeds that accompanied his teaching. As you can imagine, as we're going to see, all of this incites people to ask the question, who is this man? And that's the theme of the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Well, next time that we're together, folks, uh, we're going to look at three main things. Next week, how can a bunch of guys cut through a roof and then lower someone on a stretcher? How do you cut through a roof and then lower a stretcher through that? How is that even possible? We're going to learn that next week, Lord willing. Also, for the first time next week, we're going to see how Jesus uses the term Son of Man to describe himself. Where did he get this term, the Son of Man, and what does it mean? We're going to learn that next week. And thirdly, we're going to study another instance where Jesus again claims for himself a power and an authority that only God possesses. Next, when we get together, we're going to see how Jesus claims an authority and a power for himself that only God has. Again, more hints about who this man really is. The crowd didn't have the first, first 13 verses of Mark 1. They don't know who he truly is. Jesus is slowly revealing himself, his true nature to them. All right, as I conclude, any questions about what we've heard today? No questions? John, do you have a question? No? All right. God bless you, folks. Then we'll see you again next week. And by the way, I'll begin next week's lesson with a few moments where you can ask questions from today's lesson. So if you have one, write it down and bring it next Sunday. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being here today.